Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode is about machines updating themselves, or it was supposed to be, but the challenges that we get into of having reliable and well-known graphs of what those updates are gonna be, how to apply them, and then how to know that they worked is a really thorny problem that we don't feel like is, is well worked out or discussed. And we go through the challenges with that and have a very actionable conversation about what, what's going on and why this problem persists in the industry for so long. We actually started from the news of the day, which was that the CentOS 8 uh, mirrors are no longer available. And so anybody using CentOS 8 either has to point to new mirrors that are not maintained by the CentOS uh, Foundation or uh, has to switch operating systems. So a big day in sort of the need to understand where your updates and repos are coming from. Uh, so very timely uh, start to the conversation. I know you will enjoy it. I did have one other tech tech item, by the way, um, that Klaus mentioned in the chat that uh, was, was the same one I was going to bring to the group, oh. uh, which is the beginning of the CentOS 8 dominoes falling. Yeah. Oh. That's, that burned me yesterday afternoon and uh, in switching repos. Uh, but there is, a, there is a replacement, right? There's a short-term workaround where you can point to other repos. But didn't uh, but, the didn't the CentOS people start something new? Uh, the CentOS people, one of the CentOS founders, started Rocky Linux, and so yeah, you could switch oh, to see. Rocky. But Rocky's yeah. a Rocky's a new distro. It's it's not like when we not compatible. It, yeah. it can also switch to CentOS eight stream. But again, this is not the same as the stable set. So, so this is something I've hated since I started working with OpenStack. They they don't just archive the stuff and make it so things can't be, so that the repository just can't be added to. They just remove the whole damn thing. That is just so brain dead. Well, the, there's the, the vault uh, archives, which you can can still use as a as a repository and technically <laughs> well and and the when i looked it up for linode it um they were like yeah we're going to maintain some repos for another six months that you could point you can repoint your um mirrors to but but right it's a short-term fix it's it's not going to just helping people, but I, I don't, you know, I've been happily not realizing I've been on CentOS 8 instead of streams for, for some stuff. And all of a sudden it's, you know, yum, yum install ain't working. It's gonna catch up. I think it's gonna catch a lot of people, especially with long running VMs when they go to try and update. Oh, yeah. We we saw this happen a lot in OpenStack, but this is going to be a lot mm. bigger because there are a lot more people who use CentOS than OpenStack. Yeah. Well, I think that also, um, I have no idea which window it just highlighted. Um, <laughs> um, Upcoming. 
Oh, good. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people won't even realize that this is happening to them until it's until until it, it bounces, and then it is a pretty big switch to move to one of these other distros. Maybe you know, streams is probably the smallest shift you could make. Um, but if you know, when we switch to Rocky Rama, it's actually identifies as a new OS family. And we had, there's a ton of places where we have to add detections and catches um, for the for the checks. I guess if you're not worried about which OS you're on, you're just doing a script that has YAM update, then I think you're probably good to go. But for us, family matters. Well, gee, this takes us right into what we were talking about. It is a good segue uh, to today's topic, which is, um, are we building systems that are not intended to be updated by humans? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by the way, I'm lo looking at the agenda. We've got plenty coming up. And on, for March 1st, I threw in, since we talked about DLT last time, applications for DLT, uh, distributed ledger, if we can there. But yeah. Rocky, do you do you have a thought on on where to go from building systems that are not intended to be updated by humans? Oh, well, so the bill of material stuff that folks have been working on, the supply chain stuff mm. can help a lot. We're getting in place the information we need to be able to automate the builds and whatnot. But um, I think the CentOS thing actually might incentivize folks, since this is in lots of ways supply chain issue, uh, to this is a gap that we need to fill to even make it possible to uh, go unattended by humans. So humans still need, you know, the other key is, is until we get uh, monitoring to go along with it, because nobody monitors the supply chain. They just set it and forget it. Oh, that's an interesting. So can I break that down? Because software yes. bill of materials. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I mean, there's some work on standardized packaging so you know your software bill of materials. Um, oh, boy, I'm just, I'm thinking of something as simple as a yum update install. And... <laughs> Trying to trying to figure that out um, or an app get, but then all of those packages have build materials that go into what they're being built on. Exactly, so you, you, you literally have to import all of those. You know, figure out all of those systems. Yep, and and because we're in an extremely dynamic time where everything's mm -hmm. changing all the time in the current mode of work. Um, part of it actually even goes back to, uh, don't know if, if you saw Ava Vanderveen's post about Germany ruled that, uh, websites that go off machine to get bits and pieces to run is a violation of GDPR. And so a lot of Whoa, this time, what? yes. <laughs> so you have to have everything on your machine or a lot of it. Um, that just happened yesterday. 
uh, might want to take All it. All live the VM. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so this this kind of ties into it, too, in that we're, we've gotten so used to and in some ways so lazy about just uh, letting everything grab its own pieces that we really don't have a clue where everything is coming from. And that was the start of the supply chain attacks. And so we're now starting to figure out where everything's coming from. But then we also have to figure out what versions of everything and whether, yeah, what you said, if something goes away, uh, what's the monitoring and, and error response for those sorts of things? And what's a graceful degradation or um, way of recovery? I mean, in the old days, graceful degradation is you keep running the old stuff until you come up with a solution. So you roll back and you keep the old stuff running. And yeah, you have uh, a um, an exposed surface, but it's an exposed surface you can monitor if you know what to look for, why you're fixing the problem and rolling out the better armored version. That's also where containers shine. And you, your container itself is implicitly a software bill of materials. You, yes. Like you, you're in, in, let's say, standard Docker containers, like your Docker file, it tells you what you put into the container. You can have it explicitly versioned. And the fallout of running a... Um, a not updated container is um, scoped to the container itself, bearing uh, like runtime vulnerabilities, of course. Mm -hmm. but, um, so I know one of the frequent uh, mentioned downsides of containers that, that are uh, that are frequently brought up by container uh, containerization opponents is that each container needs to be updated individually. Uh, but as we are seeing, like for example, here with, with, with CentOS and, uh, and, and with other cases, is that you still need to do the software building material for non-containerized applications. Yeah. Uh, and keeping track of these dependencies and synchronizing these dependencies in a non-containerized environment ends up being a multiplicative effort. So each individual ap application might be easier to, um, to maintain outside of a container. But once you start connecting them, it, it becomes much more difficult. It, it, it's, it's an exponential uh, difficulty increase versus linear with containers. Yes, the cascading effect is just tremendous. It's definitely exponential, or at least factorial. Yes. Yeah, I, that's a, I don't, I, I even, we're not, I, I don't think it's just a matter of building a bomb. It, you're, we're actually building the systems in a way that's designed to do these updates. I mean, containers are like an, an end run. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to have to deal with this in the field. I'm going to do it in the container. 
but it's it doesn't actually address like are you pulling all these repos and dependencies from trusted sources? Do you know where they're coming from? Can you re you re can you pull them back in and recreate them? I mean, like with CentOS, it's like well, all these repos just went away. You might not have access to them. You were depending on them. You don't know. Well, and that's why well, I don't know if there's days, an I don't know if there's an alternative. Well, in the old days, all of these big well, enterprise companies and larger would maintain their own copies and wouldn't run. They they'd use their own repositories to do the updates, test them in the lab before they rolled out. At this yeah. point, uh, that might actually become a thing again, where you have to maintain your own distro sites and gate what comes through them. I, so, I mean, this is. But that doesn't ahead, seem Klaus. like it would actually scale. Yeah, and, and you and you have the downside is that now you have the added effort of continually syncing your your own mirror, because yeah. uh, I mean you, you can either do it automatically, and and uh, but then you you let in software that or software versions that you have not reviewed, or you do it automatically. And you forego the curation aspect of running your own mirror. Yeah. Um, and, and then you also have cases like, for example, the the Go language, where you can't do that, because a like a library reference is a URL. It goes straight to to GitHub. You you cannot uh, run a mirror of a of a package on GitHub because. You you can't oh, tell the, the the language to or the the package to point to your version. That kind of sucks. Uh, uh, what happens if GitHub goes offline? You you <laughs> no you you can no you can clone. I mean we do this. You can clone your you can clone that repo and then make you know. But now you're 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 responsible for cracking it. And so if you have a, a fork, I mean, you're, you're basically pointing to a fork. You're not getting the latest source, which creates its own problem. Yeah. And, 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 the, and, the, and the upstream repo might have other dependencies that are built in, in it, into this code that go to other GitHub repos. So you either clone the, the whole tree uh, and maintain it yourself, or you just give up and, and go straight to the source. Right, and so if you were to clone it, then you would actually have to then clone all the dependency repos and then track those also. And you would have to update each of the packages to go to to your clone again because you cannot uh, right. cannot right. configure a mirror in, in in Go. So then you have so you're forked. So you have so you now you're maintaining a fork, and it's actually is forked. It's not just a it's not just a cheap clone. It's actually a fork because the dependencies. Are redirected, and that's all. That would be a lot of work. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm struggling with. I think yeah. these technical solutions to some practical problems, like if you want to control what you kind of your source code. A lot of these, I mean, your supply chain. A lot of these solutions are really interesting. But what Rocky said about the GDPR issue, like where's the the delineation between when it's on my machine and when I need to get it onto the machine. It, just because 
if I don't do it, if I do it manually, then is I, am I not violating GDPR or is it just the automatic update of it? Like, like when is self-contained, self-contained versus, you know, just I'm, I need to build my app or I need to update my app or I need to get source code. I need to, you know, I need to maintain my app. How do they make the, we may not know, but I'm I, that, 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 judgment really confuses me from operationally speaking where is what what how do i update my server uh. well there's the really stupid <laughs> thing about the the really stupid thing about the gdpr ruling as far as i was concerned was that it covers Things like Google Analytics, which are loaded into web page dynamically. So it's I mm. understand the intent, then trying to stop the surveillance economy. But the hard part is that you know the binding between when stuff is on your machine and when you use it is really blurred when you get into something like the browser where everything is interpreted on the fly anyway. And then what is a machine? Like, it's not like all right. this data. I mean, the, no, the data right. is spread across <laughs> thousands of machines. You're right. So what is a machine? No, you're right. And uh, by the way, there's a lawsuit running around the U.S. right now, which is also funny. Um some dude looked at the source of a web page um, for some political candidate. I, I'm really being imprecise. And I apologize. Yeah, I think the I think you're thinking about the case in Missouri where the reporter reported that the website was insecure by looking at the source code of the website. He didn't do it. He just looked at the source code that was on his computer. Right. And now the governor wants to prosecute him for hacking. Yeah, that's right. Crazy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that lawsuit is going to go anywhere. But going back no. to the GDPR side, I, th I think the interesting part of it, and uh, while it is, it makes all of our lives much more difficult, I think it's also a necessary aspect, is that it forces us to look at our stack as an ecosystem as opposed to single servers. Like ultimately, what GDPR tells you is that your ecosystem must be restricted. I think you're right there. That's that's the key. And uh, right now, our that's ecosystem a, yeah. is just tendrils all over the place. Talk about spaghetti code. It's spaghetti well, microservices. <laughs> yeah, and the problem here. the problem there is what can you trust, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about this on, on the case of the enterprise, too. So is, if I build, uh, let's say I have a CRM in Salesforce, which is completely outsourced to me. And, but that's, and then I build hooks on premises to that data, and that data is GDPR. Is that now considered outside of my ecosystem? Or if I'm using, you know, a service, if I'm using an analytic service from bad person, Google Cloud, uh, just because of the name, not necessarily because the service itself is bad, but if I'm using an analytics service from Google Cloud to munch the data that I have in Salesforce, 
am I now validate, validating GDPR because I'm using two different, you know, from the layman, that sounds like two different servers, but it's still my ecosystem. Right. But I think um, I, I posted the link to the, the tab. Um, I think at this point, what the German court is saying is you need to be aware of where your uh, contracted services or use services are located. Mm. And so if Salesforce has a European center and you're using that, that's fine. But you can't use the Google Analytics because they're all based in the U.S. and they don't comply with GDPR. I, I, I mean, ultimately, the, the like you can also uh, use, you can still use the Google services that are GDPR compliant as long as the Google ser servers that serve those services are uh, under GDPR jurisdiction. Yeah. Like EU servers and, and, and GCP, for example. Exactly. And so you need to know the provenance of all of the bits and pieces that you are using. Yeah. And, 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 it's going to become just as big as to, uh, bill of material. Yeah. And I'm looking at, at, the, at the, the source code here, uh, sorry, at the, at the link that, that you posted, Rocky. I, I can't see where the thought of, of the court goes for with this because. Uh, like maybe not so much the font files, but 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 JavaScript, for example. Uh, like if you load external JavaScript, you, you need to ensure that that it mm. it behaves like you expect it to. That it doesn't send your data somewhere else. Uh, one way to um, uh, to mitigate. The, the the scope of your responsibilities as a developer can be to say, well, I got this JavaScript from a GDPR from a server that says they are GDPR compliant, so I will trust their word on that regard that that this JavaScript function I loaded is GDPR compliant and is behaving as as they expect. So it it it. It limits the scope of the responsibility in the, in the developer in saying, I've provided so the software bill of materials that's, that says this, uh, like I have this version and it performs this uh, this way. Uh, the, the source is, is under a jurisdiction that is expected to comply with GDPR. If, if all of those are the case, I cannot be sued for a GDPR comp uh, complaint if the original developer of the JavaScript that I imported changes the, the code because they are under GDPR jurisdiction and, and the lawsuit should go to them specifically. So this brings up like an interesting thing around updates, especially around open source. Uh, when you're dealing with large if you're a small ISV or even your open source project and you're providing uh, code for a large conglomerate and they have to certify and they, you know, they're too big to look at each individual ISV or project. So they push certification off to them and say, you know what, validate that 
whatever the compliance for the locality. And I, and I think this, uh, Rob, this would be a good question for you. Like okay. what pressure does that pool put on you when a big OEM says, you know what? I can't <laughs> monitor Rob's code. Rob, make sure that you're certified for X, Y, and Z so I can make this claim that Simon just brought up. Right. And the certification, that's exactly what I where I was, mm. my thinking was going. Certification is such a rat hole and pushing it off on the little guys. Uh, just, I mean, I can see an entire home industry built around certification uh, applications that who knows where they're based from, but you know, you got to get someone to certify you. And it's like third party certification suddenly becomes a thing. And well, that's that, that becomes a, a racket. Guy. That's a racket. James, I'm going to let you in. Sorry, I noticed you. No, it's like, like you said, it's a racket. That, that exists actually, though. Like when, when, when you have, when you, when you do a security audit, you go to another company and say, this is my code. These are my dependencies. These are the specific versions of my dependencies. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and, and, and give me the checkmark saying that, that I am certified to be, I don't know, DOD or FedRAMP or, or GDPR. Yeah. yeah, but that gets really problematic in open source because at that point, there, there isn't the money to create open source certification organizations and the big companies aren't ponying up money for cert wouldn't pony up money for certification in the current atmosphere. That doesn't mean that couldn't be changed, but on, on the other hand, open source at least for larger companies that have the resources to do to do so, open source allows you to rehost it as long as you don't modify it. So so you can you can keep your own mirror of it. Of course Varying language, like specific things, like like Golang, not not making it difficult to do to mirror things, uh, but but generally, open source allows you to to host your own copy of, of something. As long as you don't modify it, you, you you can say this is the same as the original version, and and and, and again, as long as you don't modify it, you, you can give someone a direct copy and say like, look. You can verify that it's the same as the original version, and and it can't be scanned mm. by, by by a third party, and they, and they can say this is how this behaves. Yeah, and for instance, with GoLang, Google is invested enough in GoLang that they would probably make sure the certification happened. They're smaller ones that wouldn't, but something like GoLang, a certification would be uh, maintained by a company like Google. It almost becomes, I, I can see easily a racket where you, there's repositories for specific industries or uh, applications and a third party validates the all of the open source in the repository. So you're not duplicating, it's kind of deduped effort, mm-hmm. not duplicating the, the, you know, certifying the same uh, code across you know, over and over again, it's just, you know, just Jones, the CRC checks, this is the same repository as is that we've already validated and you just have it local. Here's, here's a certificate that says that you're using a good version of the, a known good version of the code. I I, I can see, for example, CNCF <laughs> or, or like Linux Foundation, uh, 
yeah, pr providing those kind of those kind of uh, uh, checksums and and and, and, and validations for, for for major projects that that they themselves use or that are involved them, uh, and which would then be provide, I, I guess, as a community service. Like you, you could you could even also do various degrees of certification where you can. I'm I'm thinking, for example, like, like various total, where you can upload a binary and, and, and it can tell you to up to a certain degree of uh, confidence whether it's malicious or not. You could up, upload your source code to a some kind of service, uh, that quote unquote free, um, that tells you up to a certain level of confidence that it is compliant with certain requirements, uh, and then if if you need additional requirements for specific environments like, like federal or, or or whatnot you go ahead and, and, and go pay for the, the additional certifications but otherwise you have enough to 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 build a minimum viable product okay let's let's take some Let's take some bets here as to when <laughs> Linux Foundation and CNCF start a new project on certification. Yeah, I'm thinking Three months, I, 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 you months. guys are creating nightmare uh, <laughs> uh, reminders of nightmares for me. Back in 20, I think it was 2013, 2014, I had to I ran a big remediation project for pay for a payments processor that got hacked. And they were a Fortune 500 payments processor and they had no controls at all. Like they, it's like they grew up and just never learned how to do IT. And just simply doing this for different flavors of Windows Update. Like, and Windows Update is oh, yeah. very mature and easy. Like that whole hosting a repository for a PCI, uh, for a PCI enclave is a lot of work. Like, and that's, and that's from a super mature technical solution. It is, uh, I think there's folks, folks at CNCF and the Linux Foundation that is looking at this and say, you know what, this is a thing that we should do, but mm, yeah, we're hoping that somebody else kind of solves. That, it's interesting that, that you bring up a PCI, I'm sorry, Rob. No, go ahead. Um, it's interesting, Keith, that you that you bring up PCI because um, in in PCI, I, I mean, up to a certain degree of of that certification, uh, it it's a matter of trust. You as a payment processor, you say I am compliant with these requirements, but in many cases, and I'm not saying in all of them, but in many cases your word is taken as granted and the, and the fallout of not following or, or, or not actually complying with those steps uh, doesn't happen until after um, a breach is found. So yeah, I, I, you, I agree. And this is how the company ended up getting so far out of, you know, any acceptable set of practices, it wasn't until there was a major breach. And then the QSA came in and said, oh, and the and the uh car pay uh the uh the car brands came in and said, wow, you you guys are really horrible at this. 
uh, you have until, you, you know, you have 120 days to remediate or we're, we're, we're retracting your certification. And that's when you, you get the scrutiny and there's no longer a, a thing of trust. So I think for a lot of folks, it's a racket because they had a QSA before uh, they got breached. And obviously they weren't, you know, it was a rubber stamp of, of approval. Yeah. So, so I guess the question is like, um, it it seems like like what we were talking about, like with, with GDPR and, and the compliance uh, checking and, and so on, is we were assuming that the effort is front loaded, and and that you need to provide, you need to actually do your certification first, and I need to show proof that you've done it, um, and, and then you can go around the business. Versus, I, I guess. <laughs> Versus at least how I see PCI uh, uh, is where you promise that that you're doing these <laughs> checks and these certifications, and then afterwards, if something looks fishy, you you get audited. Um, um, I'm, I'm laughing and crying, mostly crying because yeah. yeah. I I actually think people don't even know if like they could think they're in compliance and not know. Yeah, like, like in, in in like when when you look at some security audits, like like some some like I I, I remember uh, this was a write up about about someone who was not not a write up. This was a presentation about, about someone who who was a security auditor, and they they initially they like when they were talking with clients, they they were actually. Trying to follow up on, on each of these steps and 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 and, and trying to, to say like okay how are you doing this audit how are you securing the system, but it turns out when when they, when they end up talking with 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 other people in the field more in depth is that the security audit all it required was the was for the was for the company to have a written plan for yeah. for various scenarios. They don't have to actually have to have the tools. They, they just have to have something written down that says, if this happens, this is how we plan to resolve it. Right. And having been in the middle of ISO, uh, ISO certification and research, the first certification is easy because you just sit there and you like, Klaus said, you have all these plans and whatnot. Research on ISO required you to show that you were actually using them. And so lots of companies that got ISO certified could not get recertified. Mm -hmm. But uh, the whole game of certification is literally uh, running the whole company through this sham uh, process where you sit there and demonstrate you have the processes, even though you don't. So a certification along those lines could be pretty useless. Yeah. Uh, and and then, go ahead, Keith. <laughs> no, I was going to say another problem to compound upon that the auditors, as both of you have talked about, kind of the entire process. I've been, it's, I've worked for PwC. Uh, the auditors, you you get uh, a very repeatable process and you get the least experienced person to do the audits because that's that's how you extract the most profit. 
and I've gotten and when the you know circa when enterprises were adopting cloud, cloud did not fit the audit this prescript audit process, and I got a lot of calls from. Uh, auditors who are basically financial auditors, but um, branded as security auditors who could, who just, they couldn't run, they couldn't run these processes, these modern processes through their script and get the expected answers. So uh, it is, you know, someone used the term racket. Uh, I think that is pretty, uh, a pretty accurate term to describe the whole certification and, and validation process. Mm-hmm. It almost makes me feel like we need an OHSA equivalent for the digital world. An oversight committee that, that, that is not just about certification, but actually like lifting the lids and, and, and looking at the dirt under, under things. And yeah. I think this is why it's hard. Like this is why we're this is why we're having the conversation, like what what can't be updated by humans. The yeah. I the they had this company had about a hundred Solaris servers. Have you tried to update a uh, hundred Solaris servers that haven't been updated in five years? Like <laughs> yeah. it's, My it's insane. You you can't do it. It well you can, but it's a years at least a year long process. I, in some ways, I I'm not even sure you could, and because this comes back to missing dependencies or a graph or something so, like that. It's the golden day. It's hard. It's the golden image. You have to have designed your your network of Solaris systems such that they're all identical at uh, the OS level and networking level and certain administrative levels. Once they're all identical, you can overlay apps, which is different because now it's today's VMs and stuff like that. But in the past, it was. you had to have the identical machines and you would spend a, most of a year in the lab applying the updates and seeing whether it worked and whatnot. And then once you had something that worked, you could roll it out to all the machines with a canary test in the at the beginning. But it's a hell of a uh, long process. Yeah, and I didn't have any, human process. any of that being the process. All of these were just homegrown machines oh. every, it, it was just it was oh what a mess so we're that just is. sitting there arguing about which version of of what uh of what dependency is the latest version for the overall platform it was it's, it's this stuff is hard hard oh yeah that's right well that's well this this is this to me is where it's there's layers to this actually just performing the tasks on the systems is hard and then knowing that those tasks are going to result, you know, produce the expected results is hard. Um, and and that's it's. And I hate to say yeah. it, but what happens if there's a firmware difference between the machines, and you do the software updates, and they don't behave the same? It is absolutely the case, and it's the fear, and this is why. And this is why technical debt occurs, because you don't know, you don't have a proper lab to test the, you don't have proper QA to test it. So you don't know what's going to happen. And the only way to test it is to test it in production. And production is fragile. So you get an exception to not do it. And then you're you're compromised. It's just a vicious cycle. Would it make a difference? Because one of the things that's missing in this is 
actually testing the environments as part of the process. Like we've been spending a whole bunch of time just saying it's you need a process to do updates. You need a way to track what the updates are pulling in because that's that's really opaque at the moment. But then what you just said, Keith, how do you even know if you did that work and it was all correct the way you thought that it didn't break something in the system? Because most systems have minimal health checks to say, thumbs up, this, you know, I'm now performing the way I expected. Most systems not only have minimum health check, that they have very little reproducibility testing. Mm. When I set up new systems, half of my time is spent uh, like configuring it. The other half is deleting what, what they created and then going through the configuration steps from scratch again. Like even when I when I automate everything, but I I I like end-to-end testing. Like uh and and a lot of people yeah. don't do that. And 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 you suffer from, from that eventually, but because you, your systems become snowflakes as as opposed to, to, to cattle. Yeah, I had a like, I had a project that uh we migrated SAP for Fortune uh, 100 com- company from one data center to another one. And it included the building up of every underlying component. So the redundant uh, tier zero storage arrays all the way up to networking, et cetera. And I proposed, because this is the only time you can actually do something like this. I said, you know what? I want to I want to test cluster, cluster failover for SAP, which is, you know, the organization had $17 billion a, a year in revenue. So I wanted to do, and it ran through SAP. So I wanted to do regression testing for every redundant component. I'm like, you know what? Turn off the switch, turn off the redundant switch. And it's SAP. Can I still transact in SAP? I can never, I'll never get another chance to do this. And I lost that battle, but that, so I had no, going into production, I had no confidence that my redundancies actually work. Yep. I, I mean, that is why, why Keras Engineering was born. Like Netflix made it a, an automated process of pulling the plug and, and random places to see if things are still working. Yeah, the uh, God bless Netflix. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, I haven't worked in many environments in which you can take down uh, that it's a, it's an acceptable period of downtime. Like if you're if you take down manufacturing because of you know uh, uh, of uh, of plant chaos and manufacturing is literally down. Yes, you end up being more resilient, but you just lost a whole batch of some bio uh, some bio uh, reaction, and you have to accept that loss. That is that's a, that's been a very difficult thing to sell. On the, on the other hand, uh, like also in manufacturing, for example, steel plants, there there is plant downtime for for maintenance and 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 for cleaning out the furnaces and so on because otherwise you let the slag build up and if things fail when you when you don't have a window for it to fail, the cost is much higher. Than yeah. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I, I yeah. use that argument for scheduled downtime for SAP. I'm like, look, you can't say no to, I, I got a 
I got to blow the dust out the system every every year. And that they that that resonates. Actually, that argument actually resonates. It's a good argument. Yeah. yeah. Although speaking of redundant systems and, mm. and, and downtime, um, I mean, we were almost at the top of the hour, but yeah. uh, this would have been a really good time to 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 go over the the redundancies on on the James Webb telescope. Because this is not a system that can be maintained by us ever. Uh, that's that's why I value my my space experience so much because you can't ever go out and touch it again, or if you can, it's going to be years to decade before you can go and touch it. So everything has to have good failover and has to have been tested on the ground, et cetera, et cetera. Still, this still strikes me as the thing that's missing. Using think thinking about space is there have to there you know because there aren't there can't be too many redundancies in the in that in the telescope right? It's weight limited, it's space constrained. So you know, it's a lot of it is testing and then sensors to tell you that what you did worked, that you have the feedback system, and it feels like we've completely missed all they're like we're not building anything that has the feedback to tell you that the changes that you're making are in you know are working or not working you know or or having an effect or at least being being innocuous that that a lot of what keeps us from applying the updates is we can't tell if we broke it so the the problem is rob you have your choice you it's the old you can have it fast you can have it cheap, yeah. Or uh, you can have it uh, high quality. You can't have all three of them. And with space, how long was that Webb telescope under design? That was like fifteen years or more. Long, long time. Yeah. And it's because agile doesn't work in heavily reliable uh, environment in reliables that have to be there. Critical critical mission is you cannot have agile applied to it you can have it for possibly some of the design parts but then when it comes to testing you can't just say it's built into the design it you have to verify it after the fact too and maybe go back and redesign things yeah I, i keep hoping that as these technologies mature we will have the the APIs to do those checks. I mean, the, to me, it, there's there's two sides of it. One is doing the checks, but what, the other one is you have the APIs to do the checks. Um, so you you know you, you got to build all the systems that can. can I, there actually has to be something to check, and then well, you, you have, have to go back and for APIs like the fact that they have to check. And that the API doesn't get released until it does have checks. We're, we're, we're getting we're getting a little better, right? Some of the Prometheus stuff. I was just doing some Kubernetes work where there's a Kubernetes check. Um, that, you know, there's an API that you can check to say looks good, um, but those need to be embedded. We need to start looking at systems that don't have them as dangerous or or un- unmaintainable. Wow. This did not go where I was expecting. <laughs> I feel like we. I feel like it's so hard to just have the 
have the what we want it to be conversation when it's so seems so far from that. And and we just focused on a little corner of it. Imagine, and we've got a lot more yeah. corners to deal with. <laughs> so yeah. stick it on the. We'll keep, the we'll keep going. Again. We'll keep going. Coming back to it. Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you for the invigorating conversation. I, le- I, I learned a lot. See you soon. Thanks, all. Cheers. Bye. This is a really thorny problem, and I appreciate the time and attention that the team's putting into this. Um, we have a really significant challenge in maintaining systems. And a lot of times we just ignore the fact that you know we have to do updates and patches and keep things up to date. And we aren't investing the time, both individually for our own systems, but as an industry, in making it better. And we will keep discussing this, so I hope you join us at the23.cloud and get your voice in on how do we make sustainable systems. Thanks. I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.